Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Sam C. and Crin G. Unfucking insane level members of the show. So I'd like to begin the episode on a personal note. By now you know that we're pretty transparent with our numbers. Well, last week we surpassed 350,000 downloads for the year so far. Now in truth, that's not really a lot compared to the big shows that are out there, some of which do that in a single episode. But for us, it's a huge deal because we kind of came out of nowhere. The minimal amount that we've spent to promote on the show helped put us on the map, but it's the unfuckers, the subfuckers, eurofuckers, uncanuckers, and the always hilarious down underfuckers who have been hard at work sharing the show that have made all the difference. So I want to reinforce something before we get started. There's a contract between us, an understanding that we'll pour our whole selves into researching issues and wrapping them in a loving narrative. In return, you'll talk to us. Email us, start a conversation on social media, engage with one another, and build this community. UNFTR is a lot to produce every week, and my heart is especially filled with every email that comes in thanking Manny and 99 for putting so much effort into it. It's just the three of us giving it our all, but also holding down day jobs to pay for this. So when you recognize them for how much love and attention that they give, it means more to me than you know. The fact that we were able to blend a love of politics and policy with support for Native communities through our partnership with the Unkachog Nation is also a dream come true, one that our listeners made possible. For those who have become ongoing members of the show supporting us on a monthly basis, I really don't know what to say. I mean, I was hopeful that we would sell a lot of coffee through our partnership, and then 99 mentioned casually that she created a membership opportunity a couple of months ago because listeners had asked if we had a way to support the show. So we kind of threw it up there on a whim, and now we have more than 50 members. And again, I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but to us it sure is. So just know that as we grow, we remain committed to fostering a dialogue with our listeners and getting to know those who reach out. We remain committed to the highest standards of journalistic integrity. And we remain committed to not taking ourselves too seriously, no matter how big or painful the subject matter might be. Unnecessary. Sorry. Just trying to lighten the mood. All right, let's get down to business. Washington is in a self-congratulatory mood over the spending bill that Biden just signed, so time to get busy unfucking. Of course, we're talking about the It's Fucked For Sure bill. Mmm, I don't think that's how it's pronounced. Let me help. Manny, can you give Max a little Bernie? I'm on it. Traditional infrastructure. Privatization of infrastructure. What infrastructure means. When we deal with infrastructure. What infrastructure, of course. Human infrastructure. 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 I got it. Okay. So, a trillion-dollar bill, or is it, dedicated to infrastructure spending in the United States? Pretty overwhelming stuff, but lucky for you all, I've just emerged from a self-imposed exile where I sequestered myself to read through the 2,700-word infrastructure bill so you don't have to, unfuckers. Okay, first, it's 2,700 pages, not words. You sure you read the whole thing? Either way, big deal. It's double-spaced. With pretty generous margins. Yeah, and the table of contents is like 50 pages alone. (laughs) Seriously? So many takeaways from reading the bill, not the least of which, is that it's not a trillion dollars. It's half that. And it's likely going to guarantee Democrats get slaughtered in the midterms and possibly the next election. It won't do anything to protect us from climate change. It will probably be the last significant piece of legislation Biden passes. And like every infrastructure bill before, it will be a boon to big business and you won't see the benefits of it for at least five to ten years. So there's that. 
but at least we'll have charging stations for electric vehicles from coast to coast instead of high-speed rail or more sensible pathways to aid both mobility and the environment, yet again offering a gift in the form of corporate socialism to enrich Elon Musk who won't be on the hook for a nickel of this specific element of the bill that will make him even wealthier on the back of the government that built him and the consumer that funded him. All the while, he picks a fight with fucking Bernie Sanders like a cartoon villain, you hair-plug-sporting South African-born silver spoon-sucking twice-divorced pure product of government subsidies and a 100% genuine fucking prick. Even Peter Thiel hates you, and he's the second biggest asshole on the planet. Everything you have is because of this country, you flaming fucking asshole. Max. What? Infrastructure. Come on, you got this. Ugh. <sighs> Hit the intro, Manny. This is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. Just what the world needs. He started a podcast. Another basic white guy who started a podcast. But it's fun because he curses. The world's leaders and their diplomats just wrapped COP26, the United Nations Conference on Climate Change, by committing to the science, first and foremost, and to clarifying the approach to reducing the impact of climate change through adaptation, adaptation finance, mitigation, acknowledging what it already lost and what can be salvaged, hardened and secured in both physical and human metrics. So the conference attendees reaffirmed in writing the, quote, long-term global goal to hold the increase in the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels and to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, recognizing that this will significantly reduce the risks and impacts of climate change, end quote. That's the new target. Now, critics of COP argue that it was... All again too much talk, and even if every nation adhered to their individual pledges, the best outcome would theoretically be a two and a half degree increase, and therefore still catastrophic. Those data are far from squared, so it will take some time to authenticate this claim. But one of the best outcomes of the pledge is to reconvene annually, and in particular in one year from now, with firm plans and financing to attain these goals while nations work with the private sector to bolster their participation. Unfuckers are familiar with the theme that I'm going to return to here, which I cannot help but return to, and that's the two big takeaways from our climate industrial complex episode. One, that Pentagon models since the 1990s show that the United States will fare better than most of the other countries under the most extreme models of climate change. And two, even though we're officially not at war for the first time in 75 years, our military budget is poised to increase annually for the next 10 years above wartime levels with full bipartisan support and no pushback from corporate media. I offer this context again because it lays bare our motivation here at home to pay lip service at COP26 while possessing almost no intention to actually participate in what is required to meet or exceed the targets set by the global scientific community. And how do I know this? I give you H.R. 3684, known as the Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act. For most of the 20th century, we led the world by significant margins because we invested in ourselves. But somewhere along the way, we stopped investing in ourselves. We risked losing our edge as a nation, and China and the rest of the world are catching up. Our infrastructure used to be rated the best in the world. 
Now, according to the World Economic Forum, we rank 13th in the world. Well, that's about to change. Things are going to turn around in a big way. There's our guy, the commander in sleep who rang the bell and turned the page by signing this bill, which has been touted as a once-in-a-generation effort more times than anyone can count. So I figure we should start by evaluating that claim and looking at some of the past bills. You know, as we do. Each one teaches us an important lesson about bills of this magnitude and the tide of history. UNFTR The undeveloped river, the undeveloped forest, the undernourished soil. Here lay the means of a good living for the people of the valley, strength for the nation. But the tools needed to develop these resources were lacking. That was 1933. That's a clip from old promotional film for the Tennessee Valley Authority, or TVA. The TVA is somewhat of a controversial project in American history, but offers a glimpse into how the nation developed. It's a story that pits individual landowners against progress and demonstrates our desire to tame nature and bend it to our use. It was celebrated as one of the New Deal's greatest achievements, a public authority that generated an incredible amount of work for laborers, brought power to a rural and depressed part of the nation, and turned the massive Tennessee River that flows through seven states and frequently overflowed with disastrous consequences into a power-generating and crop-irrigating machine that fueled progress in the expansive Tennessee Valley. It was also an example of the sheer brutality that comes with the power of eminent domain as it forcibly displaced some 15,000 inhabitants of the valley. Today, the TVA employs more than 10,000 people and brings power to more than 4.5 million homes and businesses, but remains a sore spot for environmentalists and residents who are beholden to the massive authority. Now, regardless of the controversy surrounding the TVA, which I'm by no means minimizing, it remains an impressive piece of innovative infrastructure devised by the innovative minds forged in the Great Depression. Lesson one, sometimes infrastructure takes as much as it gives. As the Depression wore on and projects were slow to get off the ground, industry was still moving forward in a country increasingly dependent on the automobile. This too would pressure the immature American system as the quantity and quality of roads in the nation varied widely and there was no cohesive system to move across the country in either an east-west or north-south direction. To help us get a glimpse into the future of this unfinished world of ours, there has been created for the New York World's Fair a thought-provoking exhibit of the developments ahead of us. A vivid tribute to the American scheme of living. Come, let's travel into the future. What will we see? The DOT archives speak to the popular World's Fair exhibit in 1939 titled Futurama, which captured the nation's collective imagination. From the archives, the exhibit's designer, Norman Bel Geddes, imagined the road network of 1960, 14-lane superhighways crisscrossing the nation with vehicles moving at speeds as high as 160 kilometers per hour. Radio beams and the cars regulated the spacing between them to ensure safety. In the cities, traffic moved on several levels, the lowest for service, such as pulling into parking lots, the highest for through traffic moving 80 kilometers per hour. Although the magic motorways shown in Futurama were beyond the technological and financial means of the period, they helped popularize the concept of interstate highways. Now, the key point I want to drive here relates to timing. 
The Futurama exhibit was in 1939, during the FDR years, and the New Dealers were keen to build upon these ideas to create a national system of vehicular transportation. Truman had the same designs, and these concepts were very much in the works during the 1940s. But when we think about the highway system, we don't equate it with either administration. President Eisenhower's militant call for a grand plan to provide a modern controlled access highway system for safe, efficient transcontinental travel led to the passage of the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956. President Eisenhower is given the credit for our massive investment, and that's all well and good because that's when the funding occurred and the plan was set into legislative motion. But it was a plan that was at least a decade in the making. Something to remember as we move through the years to talk about the current bill. Lesson 2. These things take time. Many states were busy in the decades between the big idea projects of the New Deal, but the feds were running short on good ideas and turning out bureaucratic and problematic housing and urban renewal programs that had marginal success and glaring issues. Nixon was focused on economic matters, getting us out of Vietnam, opening up relations with China, fostering racist domestic policies, and breaking and entering, among other things. Ford was, well, Ford was Ford, and Carter never got off the ground. Reagan, though, Reagan decimated federal domestic spending programs and doubled down on the military-industrial complex. Bush Sr. and Clinton weren't able to truly claim a victory on infrastructure either as the nation's systems slowly began to crumble and we outsourced the new broadband frontier to private companies that would light up parts of the country that made financial sense while ignoring black neighborhoods and poor rural areas. It wasn't until August of 2005 that George W. Bush signed the Safe, Accountable, Flexible, Efficient Transportation Equity Act, what a great name, after two years of bickering in Congress over a federal highway and infrastructure bill. The measure wound up at $284 billion, which was hailed as a pretty big fucking deal at the time, but it would become more known for the fuckery that surrounded the bill. So some of the unfuckers might recall the controversy surrounding the so-called Bridge to Nowhere that was originally earmarked for $200 million of this bill in the ultimate example of pork barrel spending in Washington. Now, the bridge never got built, by the way, and these funds were shuffled around in different bills over the years, ultimately landing who the fuck knows where. Although as governor of Alaska, Sarah Ubecha Palin was able to procure funding to build a road that went to the bridge that was never built. So that happened. The bigger issue surrounding this act was when it was later revealed that then-Speaker of the House Dennis Hastert fought hard to include another $200 million for his own pet project called the Prairie Highway that ran through his district. This wasn't the only thing the proposed roadway ran through, however. It also ran through private land held in a blind trust owned by, you guessed it, Dennis Hastert, who sold the lot after the bill was passed with his earmark and pocketed $1.8 million on the deal. Of course, he was never indicted or prosecuted or even censured by his colleagues. Nothing. Oh, and the Prairie Parkway? Also never built. Lesson three. Republicans talk a big game, but usually only act when it lines their pockets. So now we're in the Milton Friedman years. Free markets, deregulation, privatization. This was the way of the world as we put canes on the shelf and allowed corporations to plan America from policy to infrastructure. 
Then, in 2008, it all came crashing down as a new president was sworn into office facing the biggest economic crisis since the Great Depression, and there's no hyperbole in that statement. That's why this is not just a short-term program to boost employment. It's one that will invest in our most important priorities. The American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009 was a big fucking deal. We covered it in our Stimulate This Biatch episode, and it's likely that we'll return to it many times in the future. We talked about how the political operatives in the Obama administration, not the economists, determined that a spending bill was the only way to stave off another Great Depression, but that it couldn't exceed $1 trillion. These days, the Treasury shits out a trillion on a Tuesday. But at the time, it was considered political suicide, even if there were only days into the new administration. Recall that this bill did a lot more than pay for projects. It funded state coffers that had run dry, propped up social welfare and unemployment programs, and injected capital into every part of the system. Carved out in the bill for, quote, shovel-ready projects to get Americans working again was $105 billion spread between transportation, which received the largest share, water and sewage, broadband, energy, housing, and training. There's also a few billion for government buildings as well. I have many thoughts on this period, and I would again encourage unfuckers interested in this stuff to check out The New New Deal by Michael Grunwald to see almost hour by hour what was happening behind the scenes in D.C. It's fascinating stuff. Anyway, to bring a more clinical analysis of just the infrastructure, I'll read a couple of excerpts from a Brookings report a few years ago that calculated the impact. First and foremost, the Recovery Act, the largest public works project since the Eisenhower interstate system, showed a quantifiable relationship between transportation investment and outcomes. Investments improved more than 42,000 miles of roads and almost 2,700 bridges. They paid for 850 new transit facilities, nearly 12,000 new buses, and nearly 700 new rail cars, and they repaired about 800 airport facilities. The Recovery Act highlighted some limitations of project sponsors to quickly absorb additional funding, even within the constraints of familiar programs. Take highway spending, for example. While Congress provided funds in a single tranche in fiscal year 2009, recipients spent those dollars through fiscal year 2012, sometimes sequencing them ahead of other federal highway funds. This resulted in elevated but relatively consistent actual spending outlay levels through fiscal year 2014. Recipients can adjust to higher funding levels, but full absorption of a funding spike still takes time, and not all construction or jobs will be immediate. Generally speaking, new and more complex programs take longer to implement before shovels can ever hit the ground." End quote. I can actually remember an interview with Obama where he talked about the lessons learned from the act, and his primary takeaway was that the concept of shovel-ready was just that, a concept. In reality, except for basic road patching and paving, very few physical infrastructure projects can be considered shovel-ready. These things do take time. And so as much as Obama and company wanted to send this money flooding through the system, in most cases it took several years to actually make this happen. The other interesting point the Brookings piece makes is that some of the recipients, whether governmental or private, are unable to actually handle an enormous influx of money at one time. The more complex the project, the more methodical and patient one must be to appropriate funds. One more thing that bears repeating from our stimulus episode is that Joe Biden was actually chosen to oversee the distribution of these funds and the reporting on them. And to this day, there has been no statistical, empirical, or anecdotal evidence of fraud in the program. Now say what you want, but given the history of fuckery with spending on this magnitude, that's an impressive achievement. Nonetheless, the entire affair underscores the issue that since the highway system plan, we haven't been very good at thinking big, building new, innovating, and spending money in a way that makes life any better. 
Lesson four. Even when you think it's enough, it probably isn't. Of course, there's one man who spent more time talking about infrastructure than any other president before. So we have to build roads, we have to build highways. We're talking about a very major infrastructure bill of a trillion dollars, perhaps even more. It is also time to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. The framework will generate an unprecedented $1.5 to $1.7 trillion investment in American infrastructure. We're going to have a lot of public-private, and that way it gets done on time, on budget. We are going to fix our inner cities and rebuild our highways, bridges, tunnels, airports, schools, hospitals. We're going to rebuild our infrastructure. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Yeah, my man loved talking about infrastructure, even celebrating Infrastructure Week each year of his bizarro presidency while never actually doing a fucking thing. Except for the time he pretended to drive that big truck. Remember when he was in the cab? He was like, <laughs> Anyway, that's the stuff right there. That's what makes me miss him. Except that I don't. Anyway, Professor Orange Von Fucknugget loved talking about building things. Walls, cities, buildings, dams. He actually loved talking about dams. Trains, highways, airports. Trump even floated a $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill before it was fashionable. Of course, it never happened. Just like the wall. Just like pretty much anything he said he would do other than the tax cut. But here's where he won. He talked about it so much, people think he actually passed an infrastructure bill. And because the Obama projects finally came to fruition late in his term, and the economic recovery finally gained momentum at the same time, it didn't matter what Trump did, because it looked like all the good stuff happening was his doing. And that's why they love him. Lesson five. Pass it now, and the next guy will probably get the credit. UNFTR. Let's dig into the different areas that are affected by the infrastructure bill. First off, there are two types of infrastructure spending, physical and human. Job training, education, childcare, structural social programs have all been considered infrastructure at one time or another. There can be overlap, such as physical plant spending on education and training for specific new jobs related to innovative programs, but for the most part, human programs are intended for the benefit and betterment of people directly. Indirectly, you have physical infrastructure, which is more often associated with spending bills on this scale. Here are the areas that count towards physical infrastructure and what this latest bill is designed to address. <sighs> Aviation bridges, broadband dams, drinking water, energy, hazardous waste, inland waterways, levees, public parks, ports, rail, roads, schools, solid waste, stormwater, transit, and wastewater. Okay. So what the progressives, led by Bernie Sanders, have been trying to accomplish is to pair this first wave of spending with another bill that would address the human capital side of the equation. For a brief moment, as we covered in our progressivism episode, it looked as though the progressive wing of the Democratic Party had finally figured out how to flex a bit as they refused to bring the Jobs Act to the floor unless it was paired with the larger spending bill that would have gone to support families, education, health care, paid leave, extended child subsidies, prescription drug coverage, and a host of other social programs that might have taken us into this millennium. Sadly, they caved. And the mansion Menendez cinema wing of the Democrats shut them down and proved once again that math doesn't matter. Three moderate Democrats carry more power and weight than 96 progressive members of Congress. So instead, we got this bill and a cross your fingers behind your back promise from Manchin and company that they'll give the next bill a chance. 
Gee, thanks. So this is the bill we got. Let's see how it stacks up against what we've been told we really need, considering we've been punting on shoring up our infrastructure since before I was born, if you take out the road to the bridge to nowhere that never happened. Every year since 1998, the American Society of Civil Engineers produces a report card on American infrastructure, and so far, it's been pretty dire. The ASCE committee is composed of civil engineers who assess data based upon factors such as capacity, condition, funding, operation and maintenance, resilience, and safety. Under these parameters, they examine and grade 17 distinct areas from water and sewage treatment to bridges, waterways, and rail. The organization's stated goal is to provide a framework and baseline of objective goals that help us arrive at a solid B grade, which it considers, quote, good, adequate for now. Assets are generally safe and reliable with minimal capacity issues and minimal risk, end quote. The report card follows the standard academic rating of A through F, with this year marking the first time our overall grade rose from a D rating. Easy there. We went from a D plus in 2017 to a C minus in 2021. This increase reflects increased investment from the private sector and the states primarily, with the federal government helping in certain areas, but in more of a supporting role than a primary driver of building, resiliency, and innovation. Perhaps the greatest reflection of our priorities is demonstrated in the disparity of the grades. For example, the two most highly rated areas at a solid B grade are rail and ports. In fact, rail would actually be higher, but the consumer rail, Amtrak specifically, pulls down the rating. According to the report, quote, despite freight and passenger rail being part of an integrated system, there remain stark differences in the challenges faced by the two rail categories. While freight maintains a strong network largely through direct shipper fees, investing on average over 260000 per mile, passenger rail requires government investment and has been plagued by a lack of federal support, leading to a current state of good repair backlog at $45 billion, end quote. Our only other B-range grade is the ports, an essential component in our international trade and competitiveness. So here are the areas that remain in the D-range. Aviation, public parks, dams, schools, hazardous waste, stormwater, inland waterways, transit, levees, and wastewater. In other words, the things that matter most to you and me in our daily lives. The things that keep us safe and clean and educated. Those are the Ds, but hey, if you're in the import-export business or you're a big business or industry that has to move freight across the country, you're in luck. You got a fucking B. The financial impact of the report is interesting when we look at the context of the current bill. The powers that be just passed a $500 billion, not a trillion, $500 billion bill to be allocated over the next 10 years. But the ASC report states that while we've made incremental gains in some of the infrastructure categories, our long-term investment gap continues to grow. We're still just paying about half of our infrastructure bill, and the total investment gap has gone from $2.1 trillion over 10 years to nearly $2.5 trillion over 10 years. In other words, the act that Congress just passed, the one that they're breaking their arms to pat each other on the back over, that new bill is about 20% of what the ASCE recommends. Even being generous in saying it is a trillion, which it's not, it's still only 40% of what's recommended. So what's actually in this thing? Oh, what's in the box? What's in the fucking box? Give me the gun. 110 billion for roads and bridges, in addition to construction and repair, including funding for Puerto Rico's highways. Oh, fucking bridges and tunnels, mint. 66 billion for railroads, but mostly for Amtrak. Hey, I love Amtrak. 
Sweet. So that means high-speed rail? Oh, no. But thanks for playing. No money for high-speed rail. $65 billion for the power grid for upgrades, maintenance, and cybersecurity to prevent hacking. All right, this one goes back to our economics of racism episode. So there's good stuff here. $65 billion for broadband in rural areas and low-income communities. We've got $50 billion to protect infrastructure from hackers and address flooding, wildfires, coastal erosion, and droughts. I'll see your $50 billion and raise you five more. There's $55 billion for water infrastructure. This funding includes $15 billion for lead pipe replacement, $10 billion for chemical cleanup, and money to provide clean drinking water in tribal communities. Back to trains, but public this time. We've got $39 billion for mass transit upgrades, new bus routes, and accessibility. Right on. Look, up in the sky, $25 billion to expand and upgrade airports and air traffic control towers. $21 billion for the environment, but mostly for cleanup of really shitty sites like brownfields and old oil wells. There's some pork in there for Manchin to clean up coal mines as well. That was a provision he insisted on. Rounding out here, we've got $17 billion for ports, $11 billion for highways and pedestrian safety, $8 billion for water infrastructure out west to curb the effects of droughts, $7.5 billion for electric vehicle charging stations, you're welcome, Elon, you fucking douche nozzle, and $7.5 billion for electric school buses. And a partridge in a motherfucking pear tree. By now, you can probably tell that I'm not all that impressed. Don't get me wrong. This is a shit ton of money and we need it badly. And we'll return to the lessons we covered above in a moment. But the overarching message here is that if this is the last significant piece of legislation that comes out of this administration, and I have a bad feeling this is going to be the case, it will indeed help us close the funding gap identified by the ASCE, but only marginally so. And you know what that means, unfuckers. That's right. If this is all we wind up with, it's pedo to you. But let's do the math anyway. Yes, there will be a ton of really good union work available in all corners of the country. That's a good thing. And it will be spread over an extended period of time, so union job security in the heavy construction industry is all but a lock. But let's go back to our lessons from infrastructure bills past, starting with lesson one. Sometimes infrastructure takes as much as it gives. While there's nothing here to suggest something is ethically compromised as eminent domain, what we're losing by shooting so low and so basic is the big thinking that's required to attain the standards of COP26 on climate and focus on the social programs that help lift people out of poverty and give them a shot at economic mobility in a meaningful way, like we did in the 50s and the 60s. If you were white. Right, if you were white. And lesson two. These things take time. Right now, the economy is hot and it's getting hotter with unemployment near pre-pandemic lows and heading lower. And while there's been wage growth in the middle and upper classes, the lower end of the spectrum remains dire and dislocated. So even though some of the programs will bring new work and opportunities, it'll take time to recognize them fully and they won't funnel all the way down to the bottom. That's why pairing the social infrastructure component was so vital. Remember that this so-called trillion, which is really half of that, is designed to run over a 10-year period, so it's a lot less impact annually than it sounds. What's really outrageous politically is lesson three. Republicans talk a big game, but usually only act when it lines their pockets. 
Just like the bridge to nowhere and the Prairie Parkway, it's amazing how many times Republicans pull from the fraudulent pork playbook and demand earmarks to get their way. For example, in order to get Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska on board, we had to yet again promise earmarks for an Alaskan highway to carry 300 fucking residents and 1,400 caribou safely across the state. Now, in fairness, and not to be outdone, Gail Manchin is getting funds for the Appalachian Regional Commission specifically, a commission that she co-chairs. Huh. Why is that, why is that name familiar? Because Gail Manchin is the wife of Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, resident dickhead of the Dems. Of course, that's just political jockeying that's been going on since time immemorial. Lesson four is more on point to the conversation. Even when you think it's enough, it probably isn't. Just like Obama and his advisors caved at the thought of spending a trillion dollars and opted instead for a figure that they hoped but secretly knew wasn't enough, this bill is only, at best, 40% of what's required. And given the fact that it's actually hard to distribute this amount of money, even over a planned 10-year period, it's likely that it's not enough to bring us to a grade B level on par with other developed nations. And for shit sure, it ain't enough to get us on the path to meet our COP26 commitments to help bring the world within the 1.5 degree threshold. And back to politics for a moment, we have our final lesson to round things out. Pass it now and the next guy will probably get the credit. The real winner here will be the next president. In the meantime, Republicans are going to get all of the upside because this will bring down unemployment even further and cover the cracks in the healthcare system and inequality for a time. Healthcare because more jobs equals more covered lives. Inequality because inflation will eventually cool off and there will be just enough work to pay the bills for most people, but not really get ahead, which means people will be working, but angry about living paycheck to paycheck while Fox News goes on a rampage about immigrants reckless spending, and losing to China. This type of spending takes a while to reveal, so I expect the moderate Dems and Republicans will coalesce in order to prevent any big items from moving forward. The closer we get to the midterms, the more difficult it will be as Biden's political capital clock is tick-ticking away. Midterms will be a bloodbath, portending a complete and total impasse for the balance of his administration with a Congress deadlocked against him. I made some casual assertions just now about inflation and the impact of the stimulus, so it's a good time to review our Modern Monetary Theory episode as we close the episode out. Remember that this theory has been proven since the 1980s. We have 40 years of evidence to demonstrate that a sovereign currency nation can issue currency beyond the budget to fund programs that don't impact consumer spending items. The inflation we're experiencing right now is due to the fractured supply chain and the buildup of inventory at the ports. It's being worsened by big oil fuckery that we'll unpack in a few episodes from now. Remember that the price of fossil fuels doesn't just show up at the pump. You need oil to make plastic, to run machinery, fuel tankers and barges, heat homes, and so on. Fossil fuels linger in every inch of the global economy. So when there's artificial supply pressure at the top, it works all the way through the economy and rears its head in consumer goods and transportation. Americans are also flush with cash, so there's greater demand than supply in several sectors. This will cool off. The point is, you're about to hear, and frankly it's already started, that this spending bill and every other democratic program is causing this inflation and that we need to start pulling back on the reins. When you're confronted with this argument, you are fully in the right to push back and ask why this didn't happen when we were running outrageous annual deficits to fund military engagements. It's because there's no correlation. 
Anyway, revisit the MMT episode to shore up your arguments and read The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton if you haven't already done so. So yeah, my fear is that this plan is an echo of 2009. Because past Congresses and administrations punted on their responsibilities to our infrastructure and the planet and opted instead to fuel our bloodlust to conquer nations abroad, bills are coming due all over the place. If our civil experts believe that the funding gap is $2.5 trillion, but we managed to allocate half a trillion, please stop letting people call this a trillion dollar bill, then we're just putting on a fresh coat of paint. Installing electric car charging stations around the country will help convert the country to electric vehicles. But these vehicles are built on very dirty technology, and we have yet to deal with how to dispose of it when they die. Instead of reimagining transportation like they did in Futurama in 1939, we're just doubling down on the same old framework. Exactly what we described about our thinking relative to the global order of power and the global order of money in the last two episodes. We seem to have ceded imagination to the corporate class that is designed to extract, not to replace and reinvent. Giant server farms are using more energy than ever before. One doesn't have to test our imaginations to picture the electric vehicle graveyards of toxic parts and batteries in the not-too-distant future. This bill adds nothing to our pledge to build an adaptive, resilient, and carbon-neutral economy. And if you believe for a second that the moderate Democrats are going to allow the more important human infrastructure bill to come to pass, well then I too have a bridge to nowhere to sell you all for the reasonable price of a $5 per month subscription to UNFTR. So in review, I think I actually pronounced the bill right the first time. Hopefully there's room on Manchin's yacht when the world burns. Play it safe to win elections, and this is what you get. Don't lose faith in the progressives. Here ended the lesson. I got 99 problems, but 99 ain't one of them. Aw. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I feel pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Even after writing all of those sad statements? About the infrastructure bill? Yes. <laughs> the infrastructure show bill? I hope that goes viral. Not viral, but like, I hope that becomes a thing. I hope that people actually refer to it as the it's fucked for sure bill. I'll try and make it happen. We can make like a TikTok dance out of it. Stop trying to make fetch happen. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> so the resources are in show notes. We did have two books. They're both callbacks. They're already in our bookstore. So The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton, of course. And uh, The New New Deal by Michael Grunwald. If you're ever interested in seeing how these things actually get made and how they get passed, I think that's the closest you're ever going to get. And the resources that we listed are really from all over the place. But there's the one I would draw your attention to apart from the actual bill itself. If you go to Investopedia and uh, New York Times, we have links for both of those that really kind of give a good overview of what's actually in this bill. So check that out if you get a chance, if you're interested in this kind of stuff. And let's hop into donations. Naju Mape, or it's Najum Ape. I don't know. Najum Ape is now a member. Hey, Najum Ape, thank you. Thank you for joining the fold. Thank you for joining the legions of unfuckers. Actually, now, since I set it up top, you know it's just like 50. But that's impressive. We just did this a few weeks ago. 50 fucking members, 99. That's huge. And you just 
put it up there and you're like, hey, I bet people will do this and support us. You knew. You always know. Legout Hour is also now a member, an avid listener, and an uncanucker. Former bird name at Randomizer, FMFFRM. Good stuff. Simon B. bought a coffee for us and said, this is for the rap. Fuck yeah. We're going to mix up the intros. It's whatever I feel like. Kind of going into it. Whatever feels right. Now that we have three of them. The original. Oh. Yeah. We're not going to play that one. Yeah. We did it on a throwback episode. It was kind of neat to I hear know, it. I know, but it's so long. <laughs> not the... Well, we have a 60-second intro version, which is absurd. But it's, we did cut it down to 30. That one's even too oh, long. Oh, my friends, we are fucked. Deliciously. No. Unreservedly. Catastrophically fucked. But not, not the, the good, good kind. kind. <laughs> Jules Double L bought five coffees for us. Hey, now. Jules, that's a lot of coffee. Heard about UNFTR vibe Pod Save the People. That's right. Appreciate you. We had some uh, shout-outs on Facebook, too. Kyle C. said, Time to unfuck the dairy and meat industry. You are you are preaching to 99 as we work on our economics of food episode, which is really, parentheses, our vegan episode. But I have, boy, do I have to be bulletproof on that one before I put the draft in front of 99, or mm. else she's going to have her red pen out and maybe stick it in my eye. Do we have a name for our vegan unfuckers? I feel like there's a lot of them. Uncluckers. I hate that. Get it? No, I hate it. That's so great. I hate it. <laughs> no. It sounds like a terrible KFC campaign. Yeah, cl- well, just it's roll like that the, around, and you're you're gonna, you know what? You're gonna come to love I'm that. I'm definitely not going. No, to. you're absolutely gonna mm-hmm. come to love it. It's like the Chick Fil A cows being like, eat them instead, and I'm like, fuck Chick Fil A. Well, yeah, obviously, but also like, leave leave all of them out of it. Oh my God, come on, uncanuckers and uncluckers. It, it it has to be that way. There's got to be something else. Tomorrow you're going to come to me. Kyle, gonna like, Kyle, help me. By the way, it's great. It's pretty great. There's no way I'm coming around <laughs> on Unclucker. John B. said, unfucking tastic Thanks, John B. And Nettie said, I love the reference to Hands Across America. I was living in Chicago then. Oh, Nettie was in, Ch- in Chi-Town. Pretty interesting. I took my sons downtown that day and joined the line. It was awesome. Max once again verbalized my fears regarding our place in the world. I try to put on a positive face and put forth good energy, but it sits at the back of my head. Yeah, Nettie, dig you. So on Twitter, why don't you handle Twitter? You handle Twitter. Okay. Tracushin said, I don't tweet very often, but when I do, it's to support an awesome project like UNFTR, one of the best produced politics podcasts out there. It listens like an audiobook or radio play. Max as a narrator is not only smart and funny, but his voice is smooth as butter. Smooth as butter. You heard her. Ew. Thanks, vegan, Trick. Vegan butter. Sure. Yeah. You mean unclucking butter? Will Watkins Force said, <laughs> been listening for a couple months. Love the pod. Learning a lot. Thank you so much for your hard fucking work. Well, you're very fucking welcome. I don't like this handle. I'm sorry to this person. And I don't like saying it, but I'm, I have to. At Spongy Love Cake Come said, on, another brilliant episode, you fucking rock. It makes me uncomfortable. No, it, it shouldn't. You go like, ooh. It's like spongy love cakes. Ew. Hmm. At Marianne, I can't recommend this podcast enough for its summaries and analysis of public policy. Hot damn. And? You gotta say the first part. Wild Eye Bob. Knudsen. Sent us some Goodwill Hunting-esque photos of him in front of a whiteboard with equations and UNFTR written on them. I saw that. I really hope that those are real equations that students are in the middle of and he's just shoehorning UNFTR in them. I love him so much. Yeah, he's uh, he's repping. And then Little 197 said, thinking you guys could probably do a really good episode on Clinton. I agree. I love the Reagan episode. There's a ton of information to support the idea that who we are as a country today was conceived in the 90s. 
Instead of reversing course, he went full ahead. NAFTA, welfare, etc. I fucked so many things in the 90s. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> I do. I have so, oh, God, I could. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we need to destroy him. Um, over on Instagram, DeepPow7 said, Love the show so much. Thanks for deepening my understanding of what isn't working. I learn something every time I listen. FMF, FRR. We had some great feedback. Our buddy Derek R. chimed in again, said, Y'all brought the heat to this most recent episode, which is a callback to us bringing the heat in our new introduction that we featured last show. Thanks for picking that up, Derek R. Unfuckers undoubtedly know the references inferred in the show, like this time with John Hurt's narration. Good stuff. And the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the BBC documentary. It's just that these clips make the episode all more effectual when you include them. Your intersecting of information with impactfulness was flawless. As always, Bas Bien, 99, Manny, and Max. Mark P., with all your earlier efforts, I enjoyed your recent podcast. However, I do not think you dug deeply enough before your easy condemnation of Truman's decision to drop the atomic bomb. If you research, I believe you find that over 200,000 innocent people occupied Southeast Asia were dying of their treatment by the Japanese every month by mid-1945. Therefore, if any type of negotiation delayed the end of the war by as much as three months, it would have cost more innocent lives than were sacrificed in the two Japanese cities. Hmm. Mark, I'm going to look into that. I mean, you make a really salient point. A life is a life is a life. And these are the choices that we make in war. The point that I was making in that was that we could have demonstrated our ferocity by basically telling the world, showing them on some remote location, the power and devastation of our nuclear weaponry and saying, you're next if you don't like surrender immediately. And what's what's still, I'm sorry, but unfathomable to me is is that we did it again three days later after we saw that immediate human toll and really hadn't even calculated the devastation from the nuclear fallout. So I get it, like an eye for an eye argument, but it's something I, I, I want to think about. But I still think it's incomprehensible that we actually dropped it. Anyway. You're saying nuclear wrong. Nuclear. Yeah. Nuclear. <laughs> we have nuclear bombs. You know who said nuclear also? Nuclear, Carter. Nuclear, old Jimmy. Our darling Mickey. I knew a girl named Mickey. I was listening to the Global Order of Power this morning. Presidential Medal of Honor thing you did almost made you drive off the fucking Skyway Bridge. I laughed out loud. Super fucking funny. Love you guys, especially that basic white on fucker 99. Max and Manny are pretty fucking awesome too. Thanks, darling Mickey. Kristen C. wants us to unfuck mental health in America, saying, how can we ever reach our potential when there's so many fucked over and left behind? Couldn't agree more. So sort of on the docket right now, Kristen, is mental health, but looking at it in the context of defunding all of these social safety nets and, and mental health programs in the 1980s, which is not to say that they were working, but it was something. So something that ties in mental health, maybe homelessness as well, and... I mean, there's there's so many avenues to go, obviously. I mean, we could do an entire, and there are many great entire, you know, podcasts dedicated to mental health. I think the way we're going to go about it is how we approach it and how we fund it, where we fucked it up, and then also kind of what happens as a result of that type of policy. And we'll tie in some other, some other things. So we got you. We got you, Kristen C. A lone liberal in rural Missouri. Another person, another unfucker that we have to airlift. Got to get him out. Always enjoy your show. When you're done covering all that's fucked up on Earth, will you take a look at the capitalist satellite shit show going on in low or low Earth orbit and the Space Force now needed to protect our, quote, interests? That is a really fucking interesting subject. That is really interesting. So 
Why don't more of them come crashing into Earth? Who put them all up there? Who owns them? The planets? If you get... They're not stuck up there. They just, you know, they float in orbit. The satellites, oh, 99. Oh, okay. Got it, got it, got it. It's like space garbage floating around. What happens when they don't work anymore? Why don't they hit each other? That we have, that they have so many up there floating around in the atmosphere. I have so many questions. I have a hard enough time with the planet. But the lone liberal in Rome... Fuck. But the lone, lone liberal, lone liberal rumor. Lone liberal, stop it. <laughs> but the lone liberal in Missouri forcing us to think outside of ourselves. Alan G thinks we talk too fucking fast. I value the commentary. Your intensity resonates with me. Profanity is a plus. LOL. I wish you spoke slower. <laughs> I can talk to this one. Sure. Alan, so yes, we do talk fast. Do we? A little bit. So what you can do, Alan, is if you download our version of the show without background music, you can listen on 1.5 speed or 2 or 2.5. Whatever. Does that make it faster? Oh, yeah. He can listen on negative speeds. <laughs> is that a thing? Yeah, you can listen at 0.5. You can? Mm-hmm. What, what the hell would I sound like at 0.5? You sound drunk. I've done it before. It's really? It's really funny. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm drunking the Republic. (laughs) So that's not going to be a good option for for Alan? I mean, he can do 0.75, which would probably be okay. That's a thing? I mean, all podcast apps are different. Okay. So it depends on what what platform you're using, but there are ways. I had recently gone back to listen to one of the earliest shows that we'd done because I was trying to do a callback to one of the concepts in it. I think it was in Stimulate This Biatch. And I was actually struck by how slowly I was going through that. It was just more measured and more matter of fact. And I think I've been getting either increasingly crazy or just more animated as we've gone along. I'm just excited. Yeah. We did also take, uh, because we didn't have any listeners, we did take... It's true. We we had weeks to record and write. That's true. So... (laughs) Just staying up later. Yeah, if anything, (laughs) it's not doing... Ooh, I just said your real name. Dun, dun, dun. I was going to say, not doing his real job. (laughs) Good thing we're not live. (laughs) Uh, bookstore Kim, who you know we shouted out in the last episode when we were talking about her beautiful bookstore up there in Vermont, said, Hey gang, thanks for the big Green Mountain Books shout out. We are located in beautiful downtown Lindenville. Yeah, this is this is on me. It's spelled L-Y-N-D-O-N-V-I-L-L-E. And for some reason, my brain, every time I read it, did not read the, the first N. So I've been so calling it Lydenville. Lyden? Oh, Lindenville. So we want to make sure we give the right the right city. Lindenville. It'd be great if there's some bookstore in, in Lydenville that's <laughs> yeah, like, this Mountain is great. Books. Her name's also Kim. <laughs> and by the way, excited to be on the tour list. Oh, hell yeah. Jacob W. said, just brewed a cup of decaffeinated on fucking to test it. And oh my, it's a beautiful thing. Tastes even better knowing I'm supporting my favorite podcast as well as indigenous peoples of native coffee traders. Jacob W. has this fucking down pat. I know. Should we put that on the bags? Seriously. Right? With a little Jacob W. Love you guys. Love all you do. Fuck Ronald Reagan. Long live Uncle Gnome. And we had a review from Jules LL. Absolutely fantastic. Max99 and Manny present deeply researched, intelligently presented topics each week to show how our democracy project has gone astray with tips on getting involved, get things working the way they need to. Thank you so much, Jules, for coming in and uh, reviewing the show. Unfuckers, I would encourage you to do likewise. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Manny Faces Media. Hey, uh, I just want to say thank you so much for all the love and support. It really means a lot. Couldn't do this without you. Love you. It's your man, Manny Faces. Peace. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99.
I'm moving to Lindenville. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. All of our original music, by the way, is composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Old Corn Pop, the gangbanger, and distributed by Elon Musk's fucking hair plugs. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at unftrpod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash unftr. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop and read our essays on you. Fuck. And read our essays on Substack at unftr.substack.com. And remember, it's always free, or as 99 likes to say, free 99. Peace out, 99. I'll see you next week. A friend of mine who listens to the show said that it sounds like I'm trying to send a message that I'm imprisoned. Really? Free 99. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about it. Oh, that's true, too. Okay, so it's just free. Yeah. This is my new thing. Every week there's going to be a new shirt. Last week it was Saws Across New Jersey. (laughs) This week it's free 99. Is that too dark? Um, (laughs) I think it's going to be all the rage. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, we're lying. So I'm not going to see you next week. I'm going to see you in like a minute and a half. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, I will see you. uh, Not even a minute and a half because when I hit stop, you'll still be here. I don't just disappear. I mean. Magic. Here we go. The It's Fucked For Sure Bill. 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 And the ghost of spending bills past. I can't recommend this podcast. Hmm. We had a review. Jules Jules Lules Lee. What the fuck? 21 billion for the environment, but mostly for cleanup of really shitty sites like brownfields and old fuck. 21, 21. <laughs> get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop and join us. Get some native roast. Fuck me. Get some. I love when you giggle. But these vehicles are built on very dirty. Wow. Pardon me. Excuse me. So Tricushin said, I don't tweet very often, but when I do, it's a. It, it's, like my brain just stopped and it was not signaling to my mouth anymore. Trakushin said, I don't tweet very often, but when I do, it's the support and awesome. What's wrong with me? Trakushin said, I don't tweet very often, but when I do, it's to support an awesome project like UNFTR. One of the best produce. Oh my God. It's okay. I'm like, I don't know like what sentences are. Trakushin said, I don't tweet very often, but when I do, it's to support an awesome. Trakushin said, I don't tweet very often, but when I do, it's just, it's. <laughs> wow. This is great. This makes me feel so much better. Trakushin said, I don't tweet very often, but when I do. <laughs> but when I do. <laughs> um, when I do, it's to support.